hopefully the series that we're doing on the I am statements of Jesus as we've just affirmed some things about who we are, our identity in Christ, our security in Christ. It's all bound up in the the person of Jesus. Uh, We're doing a message series entitled um, the I am statements of Jesus and how that can change your world, which I honestly think that that they can as our minds and our imaginations kind of absorb uh, what Jesus said and what he did while he was here on earth. If you're new to the person of Jesus, I'm sure you've heard a lot of things out there about who he is and what he's done. But I hope in here, as you're hearing about Jesus, uh, that maybe there's some fresh ways that you can come to understand him. Uh, And I, I think God uses a variety of tools and methods and ways of just projecting and telegraphing to the to the world that's so lost. Uh, here is my son, here is my son, here is my son. And you know, uh, he showed up in one of the places I never in the world thought he would show up. And it was in a movie and everything about the movie paralleled so much of what we're getting ready to read in John chapter 14. And believe it or not, it was in a Clint Eastwood movie. I know probably some guys, I got your attention now. Uh, if you're like me, uh, you, you at least have to acknowledge Clint Eastwood. Um, and if you're even more tuned, you got to think he's right up there in the pantheon of modern day superheroes without the superhero strength. I mean, how many of you have actually seen the movie Dirty Harry? Okay, all right. How many of you have seen High Plains Drifter? How about Pale Rider? Wow. I feel like I'm in really good company here. This is awesome. We need to do a Clint Eastwood marathon. I can see it coming. And one of the things, now, now let me guess. If, if you're like me as well, when you watch these shows, these things jump out at you. Life is just humming along for just ordinary folk. And then all of a sudden, bad guys show up. They do untold harm to ordinary folk. And then in rides Clint Eastwood. As Dirty Harry, as Pale Rider, as you name your character. And it seems like every time he's confronted with the, the dilemma of seeing innocent people suffer and bad people getting the upper hand and getting over on them, inside there is something that just begins to simmer. He, he's indignant about the possibility of that continuing. And there's always a reckoning that happens where there is a balancing of, ju- of the scales of justice through his singular attempt uh, to right the wrongs. And I don't know about you, you can package that any way you want to. It always works for me. But then there was a show that he wrote, directed, and starred in that came out not too long ago called Gran Torino. Anybody see Gran Torino? It was a little different. But I can tell you, it was overwhelming for me because there were so many layers of so many good things happening in this movie that I, I, I was just, I just soaked it up like a sponge. And, 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 and at, when I got done, the only thing I could say about it was, wow. And if I were to change anything about that movie, it would just simply be the title. Rather than Gran Torino, 
Dodge Challenger. If it had said Dodge Challenger, it would have been a perfect movie, but, you know, I'll take it. And uh, no offense to Grand former Grand Torino owners if there are any in the room. But you know what I liked about this show? It wasn't that there wasn't an innocent community of people that were just humming along and bad guys came and disrupted it. It was how it all unfolded so differently. If you can imagine a somewhat crusty retired automotive worker in a once thriving suburb of Detroit looking at his community change so profoundly because the plants are all closing and his friends are all dying and he even loses his spouse. And he's even wondering if there's a God in the mix. And to make it worse, there are a community of people that are different than his Anglo-American white community that he's so used to. These are people from Vietnam who are just refugees from a terrible experience that they had who had been resettled into places like Detroit. They're called the Hmong people and as they began to just display their culture and their way of life in his neighborhood, he found that very unsettling and he found it hard to embrace the fact that change had occurred until he found himself in the role of a, of a mentor to, um, and it was sort of at his, uh, you know, unwillingness, but he found himself having to take on the responsibility of seeing a young man mature into um, adulthood and manhood. And he, he just instinctively just takes him under his wing, this young Hmong boy who is looking up to him as his only father figure. And as he gets more and more comfortable with the role, he finds himself taking an interest in the well-being of the community of people that he had at first said, I don't want anything to do with those people. But he came around to the place where he realized they're no different than him. Matter of fact, they've got the same problems and the same aspirations that he had. And it really hit home the day that he had received word that the, the sister of this young man had been raped by a, a gang of, of, of thugs that were just tormenting the overall community. And that's when his, his dirty, hairy gene kicked in. But how it kicked in was unexpected. Now, you guys have had like three, four, five years to watch this movie. So there's going to be spoilers. So I'm just telling you, you had your chance too late. Um, he's looking at the situation and he realizes that this girl who's been, you know, she's been, she's been battered by these people and violated and that it just, it, it's getting him inside. And the young man is looking up to, to Clint Eastwood and he's saying, uh, and his name is Walter Kowalski, he's, he's saying, you know, Walter, what do we do with this? And Walter doesn't seem to be doing anything about it. And it's really upsetting to this young boy because he feels like some kind of reckoning needs to happen. And you would think that it would happen, but he doesn't do anything. He just keeps carrying on his business, going around bantering with barbers and teaching the kid how to grow and be a man and all of those things. And the kid is in the back of his mind thinking, somebody needs to do something about this wrong that has happened and who's going to do something. But what he didn't realize is that Walter Kowalski was in his mind planning a way to not only remedy the situation, but to bring the community back to the place where it was peacefully before evil had 
come into the equation. And so you see a lot of things happen that make you wonder, is this thing going to end like a Dirty Harry movie? And it finally culminates, here's the spoiler, it finally culminates where he's getting attacked and he's getting harassed and he's, he's being called out for being that old guy who doesn't fit in this place anymore. And then there's the showdown and it's not unlike the spaghetti western, the good, the bad, and the ugly. You've got the bad person over here, bad people over here, and you've got Walter Kowalski over here. And there's kind of an exchange back and forth of what are you going to do about it? And, and, and sort of like, I'm not sure if you know what I'm going to do about it, but when I do it, it's going to undo you. And you're thinking, how is this going to happen? Until at night he goes to the very residence where these gangs are and he stands up to them. And they're in the house and off in the distance across the street, there he is. And he reaches into his coat to grab something. And when he pulls it out, they shoot him. The only thing is, as he falls to the ground in cruciform fashion... There's nothing in his hand. And they killed him in cold-blooded murder. He was an innocent man. Yet every one of them, as a result of the way that they, they murdered him, went off to prison. And it was his way of dying to save the community. And nobody saw it coming, but after he did what he did, everybody in hindsight knew that his purpose in life was to give his life for a community that he wasn't entirely comfortable with but grew to love as he interacted with them. And I don't know how a movie could intentionally portray the gospel any better. You see, what we're getting ready to look at is a part of Jesus' life where these very things are going on. Essentially, John says, the Son of Man came into our world, became one of us, and then he started interacting with us. The only problem was he discovered that in our fallen and broken ways, we're different. And we're not easy to love or get along with. And we don't even receive compassion well without sort of uh, biting the hand that feeds us. Or in many cases, Jesus did good and no good deed went unpunished. Sometimes he was well received and it was reciprocated in kind. And it was just a whole mixture of all kinds of responses that people had to Jesus because their humanity just kept showing up in different forms. And I don't know about you, if you've ever tried to do good for somebody, sometimes it goes well, everything goes according to plan. Other times you get pulled into a drama and it's like you end up becoming the victim in the whole thing. And I don't think that's unusual for the life that we're called to live here on earth where it's so broken and evil is so uh, prevalent all around us and even in us. That when Jesus was at that place where they were getting ready to reel him in because he had created such a critical mass of people following him simply because he was saying things about God in a tone and in a way that demonstrated that God loved them. He was, he was showing compassion to a woman at a well. He was 
delivering people from the affliction of demonic oppression. He was taking uh, limbs and eyes and he was binding them up and he was healing them completely. He was helping people to see a new vision for who God was based on the teachings that they had heard in the temple. But he's showing it in such a way that all of a sudden they're sort of jaded and dulled eyes transformed into wide-eyed and seeing possibility upon possibility that he is the Messiah. And everything he said seemed to point to everything that they had been promised before. And it came to a place where he started acting funny. Like this doesn't make any sense. And I'm going to show a five minute video clip by the Bible Project, which is a storyboard kind of illustration of where we're at in John and what John's trying to tell us. So it hopefully won't be too nerdy for you, but it'll help me to say what I've been trying to say this whole time about how the I am statements should capture our mind, our imagination, and our lives as we seek to become who we're supposed to become as followers of Jesus. So let's show that first before I get into the passage. The Gospel According to John In the first video we saw that John wrote this book to make the claim that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the human embodiment of God's word and glorious presence who has come to reveal who God truly is. Then we explored how John designed the first half of the book to demonstrate this claim. Jesus performed miraculous signs and made huge claims about himself, that he is the reality to which Israel's entire history points. And this all generates controversy, however, and the Jewish leaders confront Jesus for all these claims, and it culminated with Jesus laying down his life for his friend Lazarus. By going near Jerusalem to raise him from the dead, Jesus sealed his fate. And so once the plot to murder Jesus is set in motion, we come into the book's second half. The first part focuses entirely on Jesus' final night and last words to the disciples as he tries to prepare them for his coming death. Jesus performs this shocking act at dinner. He takes on the role of a common servant by kneeling down to wash their dirty feet, something that in their culture a superior rabbi would never do for his disciples. And Jesus says it's a symbol of his entire life purpose to reveal the truth true nature of God as a being of self-giving love. And it's also a symbol of what Jesus is about to do in becoming a servant and giving up his life to die for the sins of the world. And so this act leads to his great command to his disciples that they are to follow him by loving one another as he has loved them. Acts of loving generosity are to be the hallmark of Jesus' followers. This is what will show the world who Jesus is and therefore who God is. Now from here Jesus goes into a long flowing speech that's concluded with a prayer. And you'll find the whole thing is unified by a few repeated themes. Jesus keeps saying that he's going away, which makes the disciples sad. But Jesus says it's for the best because it means that he will send the Spirit, also known as the Advocate. As a human, Jesus can only be in one place at a time, but the Spirit can be Jesus' divine, personal presence in any place at any time. And the Spirit will do a number of things, Jesus says. So remember, for John, the unique deity of the one God consists of that loving, unified relationship between the Father and the Son. Jesus says the Spirit is that loving, personal presence that will come to live in his people and draw them into the love between the Father and the Son. 
than the Son. And so, Jesus says, His disciples are the ones who abide or remain in that divine love. The way that branches are connected to a vine. He's describing here how the personal love of God can permeate a person's life, healing, transforming, and making them new. And there's more. The Spirit will also empower Jesus' followers to carry on His mission in the world. To first of all, fulfill the great command to love others through radical acts of service. But also, Jesus says, the mission is to bear witness to the truth, to expose and name the selfish, sinful ways that we as humans treat each other, and to declare that in Jesus, God has saved the world through him because he loves it. He's opened up a new way to become human again. And so finally, Jesus predicts that there will be opposition. Just as the Jewish leaders rejected him, so his followers will be persecuted. But he tells them not to be afraid because he has already conquered or gained victory over the world. Now, What does Jesus mean by victory here? He doesn't say. But it leads us into the final section of the book where John shows us what victory looks like Jesus style. The Jewish leaders send soldiers to Jesus and his disciples to arrest him. And when the soldiers ask which one Jesus is, he declares, I am. And they fall backward. Now this is brilliant on John's part. These words are the culmination of two sets of seven instances where Jesus has used that very phrase. And it all highlights one of John's core claims about Jesus. The words I am, or in Greek, ego and me, they're the Greek translation of the Hebrew personal covenant name of God that was revealed to Moses back in Exodus chapter 3. It was also repeated many times in Isaiah. And John has strategically placed seven moments in his story where Jesus says, I am, followed by some astounding claim. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world, the gate for the sheep, the good shepherd, the resurrection, the way, the truth, and the life, the true vine. And John's also designed seven other stories that have key moments where Jesus says simply, I am, echoing this divine name. And so here, this occurrence, as Jesus is arrested, it's the ironic climax of all of them. Because Jesus reveals his divine name and power and victory precisely at the moment that he gives up his life. Alright, you got all that? Because there's going to be a test after the service. Now, if you, uh, if you enjoyed that or if that was helpful, there is a website called The Bible Project, and it is probably my favorite go-to when it comes to explaining things uh, in that kind of fashion that I can relate to uh, in, in that illustrated form. They, they do a fantastic job. In what you just heard, there was one statement that, that, that kind of rang out for me, and, I, and hopefully it did for you as well. And that is when he said, and Jesus came to show us a new way for being human. And maybe that's why you came to church in the first place. Uh, Perhaps there was something in your life that compelled you to say, I'm tired of doing it the way I've always been doing it. And I know that's the case for myself. I, I didn't come to church until I was 19. But I did know this, there was things stirring in my soul that I felt like weren't right. There was anger, there was frustration, there was um, um, uh, all kinds of uh, being drawn into things that I knew were unhealthy. Uh, there was um, this sense of getting even with people that had wronged me in, in violent ways. Uh, there, was, there was lust. There was this notion of not maybe murdering anybody, but certainly 
letting them know what I think about things I disagree with. And all of this stuff that is inside of you that is just churning and so toxic. At least at age 19, I was thinking, I can't be this way the rest of my life. There's got to be a better way to be human. But I honestly did not know how to even begin or how that would even find a resolution in the form of a philosophy or, or some new way or even Christianity. And I discovered when I came to church that there were people who embodied the characteristics that we read about in the Gospels who had a different spirit about them. There was something that was almost the polar opposite of all those things that were inside of me that I saw radiating in their lives. It was love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I know no church is perfect in that way, but there's enough of that going on in churches that people are drawn into those places because those people seem to reflect the qualities of the God that we long to connect with. And when John writes this gospel, he's trying to capture your imagination as well as mine so that we can see portraits of who Jesus is that rather than are off-putting or maybe we've heard negative things about who Jesus is outside this building, but rather as we see them, we see the very heart of God at work. And that's really the intent. When Jesus said, I am all of these things, he's telling everyone, you had hopes and aspirations prior to my coming to earth that there would be a better day, that there would be a way that we could become a new humanity. But it seems like the religious establishment at the temple didn't do a very good job of showing those qualities because they also had anger and rage and murder and, and lust and frustration and, and, and being involved in activities that weren't really above board. And so they just saw the hypocrisy and the sham of the whole thing. And a lot of people just felt like, I believe in God, but I don't believe in the church. And then one day, this breath of fresh air shows up named Jesus. And he begins to do things in the lives of people that just cause them to go from glazed over in their opinion about all things religious to standing up and paying attention. And as Jesus did all of these works and people saw the compassion in the heart of God, their vision of God changed. It wasn't just somebody in the temple who is distant and really there is no access to because the gatekeepers are keeping us out. Rather, God is in the middle of everything that is messy in the lives of the people of the gospel and your life and mine working. And as God's doing that, he's saying, this is how I am. This is how much I love you. And I've come here to create a new humanity. But how do you create a new humanity based on the old ways of doing things? Most people expected that, that when the Messiah came, he would begin to clean house. He would go to the temple. And not only would he overturn the money changers, but he would he would chuck out all of the people that were calling themselves priests who were so hypocritical and create some kind of a reform. And he would take it a step further and he would confront the Roman government who had a military presence all throughout there and heavy-handedly were keeping people in subjection to the, to the will of the state. And there was, a, there was a hope, there was a longing that that would happen. 
so they're confused whenever he comes. And the only picture that they see is him washing feet. Really? You're washing feet? And it was hard for them to reconcile a powerful, victorious, perhaps even necessarily violent king with this image of a foot washer. God, what are you doing? Are you not aware? Are you not paying attention to what's going on around you? And by the third year, people were starting to get restless and they were starting to wonder, is Jesus really who he said he was? Because he sure isn't acting like it. They're coming after him and he just seems to be sort of rolling over. Yeah, he's calling them out, but he's not doing anything except washing our feet. And seemingly behaving oblivious to the larger realities that are pressing in on us. And then Jesus starts talking about leaving. And this gets him upset. And in John chapter 13, Peter asks, he says, point blank, where are you going? And Jesus doesn't give him a straight answer, but rather he kind of lets it sort of brew a little bit hoping that as they wrestle with that and he doesn't tell them just yet when he says what he's going to say they can take it and so here's what he says in John 14 1 and following let's go ahead and show that Jesus looks at him and he says let not your hearts be troubled believe in God believe also in me in my house in my father's house are many rooms if it were not so would I have told you that I go prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you also may be. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And then Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Well, Jesus is really kind of making it even more confusing by what he says to them at that moment in time. But like anything, hindsight's always twenty twenty, isn't it? We had... Um, we, we had some old videos that I, I had videotaped of our kids in the 90s. And then we just put them in a, in a case and left them in, in, uh, on the shelf and didn't do anything with them until my wife came up with a Groupon where uh, she could send them to a service and they would take all these videotapes that we had taped over the years and remaster them in digital format. And she asked me if, I, if, you know, if we had to do that. And I said, yeah, we probably need to because those tapes are they're, they're deteriorating. Well, she sent them off, we got them back, and then she's going through them. And I'm thinking, man, that's a lot of stuff to go through. But she reeled me in one day when she said, you need to come down and look at this. And so I did, and I, I saw two little kids. Uh, 
there was a third kid later on to emerge, but he wasn't quite here yet. And uh, one of them was about five years old, and the other one was about four. And I thought, well, this should be funny, interesting, goofy. And I was holding the camera, and my four-year-old, I'll just pick him, he had decided that it was time for me to take the grand tour of the backyard. And if you know anything about him, it's had to do with plants. And I was kind of curious to see, after all these years, what he knew. And so he started at this first plan, and he went on to describe that it was, um, you know, it was uh, Coreopsis. And I'm thinking, that's a big word for a four-year-old. And then he just goes on plant after plant after plant, describing in detail each of, each of their, their, their definitions and their titles. And I'm watching this, and I'm like, where did that come from? It didn't come from me. But when I'm looking at this kid and I, and I see something in that kid that I've seen in all three of my kids, when they, when they were little, they, they kind of look like me. And so I'm kind of seeing a version of myself in this young four-year-old, but he's doing something that clearly didn't come from me. It came from his grandfather, who's the plant guy. And he had died a few years back and it was kind of tragic that their lives didn't overlap but it was so interesting to see how something had been passed on that just continued to emerge in another life. Well the profound thing about it was as I'm watching this and he's telling me this uh, I'm starting to get a little teary eyed and I'm thinking man this kid is 22 years or 20, 20 years later and I'm thinking everything that he was doing there just kind of unfolded where what he was doing there was just an elementary version of what he's doing now. I thought it was so cool to go backwards and look at the potential that's there, not fully realizing where it was going. Have you ever had that experience looking at your little kids? Well, I can tell you this. If you're not recording anything, you should because... That was one eye-opener. I'll tell a little funny one on my daughter who's not here, and she won't listen to this. So she was uh, with her brother. It was Christmas, and for some reason, he was getting a little bit more stuff than she was, and he was holding in his lap this little doll. It was Woody from Toy Story. And I could just see her looking at Woody like, man, I'd like to have that doll. And he's holding on to it, and then another package is put in front of him and he goes to open it up and then here's Mayim pulling it back he starts to be aware and she lets go and then he gets interested in something else and he pulls it back and then she has it and I'm like wow sin is already at work at three years of age and in this mixture of everything that we potentially are designed to do and everything that is in us that is inclined away from the things of God, Jesus came into our world and said, we got to redo this. There has to be a new opportunity to redo our humanity. And so I'm going to do it completely different. And they're not even going to see it coming. It's going to be so unexpected. I'm going to actually overthrow the forces of evil. But I'm not going to use the evil force, the forces that evil uses to overcome it. I'm actually going to use the force of love. And so Jesus is trying to show them, embody in his practices, teach them, 
in every way possible help them to capture the substance of how he's different. And he's hoping after spending three years with them that they begin to connect the dots in their own lives and they begin to have those same characteristics in their lives for other people. And Jesus tells them, first of all, I know you're feeling insecure. I know you're feeling nervous. I know you feel like you've put all of your eggs in this one basket and now this basket is being just steamrolled by the religious establishment and the Roman government and a few people who are doubters. And I know that you're afraid. I want you to take courage. I want you to take heart. Because in this world, you're going to have trouble. It will happen. It is just part of the way of life here on earth. But you need to know something. I have overcome the world. And there's a new story being written. And my job is to bring you into this story. And to change you along the way as that story gets inside of you. And when you have trouble in this world, you need to be assured that when it ends, and it will, that I'll already be someplace down the road waiting for you. And there's so much in here that Jesus just brings a beautiful picture of the, humans, the human elements of who God is that mean so much to us. See, I don't think I would be here, honestly, if this was just about a philosophy or a harsh God who was just trying to scare me into that place. Now, no question, God is angry. He is seething over the reality of sin and evil and Satan and the third that have fallen with him and death itself. It is so under his skin that he cannot hardly stand it or restrain himself. But he knows in order to show a new way, he has to win in a different way. And right in the middle of all of this, he tells them, when it ends, I'm going to go to that place that I need to go to. And I'll be there waiting for you. You can be totally and completely assured that when you get there, it will be worth it. Now, when I was younger and in college, I'd come home on weekends and my, my parents would They'd leave the light on for me. I may get home in the evening or I may get, may get home at 2 o'clock in the morning. And you know what? They'd be up waiting. And my mom, bless her heart, would have food for me. And if she was feeling magnanimous, she would have some pumpkin pie. And it would be so cool to know that when I left that college campus, I just knew that there would be no doubt they would be waiting up for me. Ten times out of ten. And then when, you know, they got older and my dad passed away, my mom still kept that going. Every time I show up, even though she's 80-something, she still does that. But the interesting thing is my kids are starting to come back and do that same thing. Where now they're coming home and I'm the host or my wife and I are the host. And they'll come home all hours of the night and first thing on our, on our minds is, do you need some food? And then the second is, you know, how's it going? And we just want to hear all about it. And 
there's something comforting knowing that there are people who have gone ahead of us that have said we've been down this road and we are waiting for you. And so he wanted them to take their new identity as followers of Jesus, as Christians, as the children of God and place it in a framework of understanding that was that they could relate to that said there is someone who loves you on the other side of the journey waiting. And along the way, everything that you need, I will provide. Because when Thomas asked, show us the way, you know, he's just thinking a simple path. But when Jesus said it, it was layered because he said, I'm the way, I'm the truth. I'm the life. And as he says that, in that moment, they're thinking, what does that mean? But later on, they reflected on it and realized everything that you need for the journey, Jesus says, I'm the way. In all the I am statements that he said about himself so far, it's his way of saying, whatever your need is, I am that. I am that provider. I am that source. I am the answer. I am the one who will help you through the problem. And whatever is going on in your life right now that you are facing in this season, and whatever the answer is to that, I can assure you that Jesus is saying to you, I am whatever that answer is. And it's so wonderful to know that Jesus just brings so much richness to this. It isn't just, okay, we're following you, Jesus, to heaven. It's rather, we're following you, Jesus, to heaven and the new creation. And as we're following you, you are with us along the way, helping us with everything that we need at every turn if we trust that. And Jesus said in this chapter that we didn't read as it went a little bit farther... That he's sending the Holy Spirit so that, as the, as the video said, we can have that same spirit that is at work in the Father at work in us. That same spirit that says, yeah, you had a pretty toxic thing going on in your soul. But now that I'm here, you have love and joy and peace and patience and so on for everything at every turn for all that you face. And when Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, he was telling them, whatever happens, just keep your eyes on me because I'm going to lead you through this. But how many of them were thinking that when they were dragging him off to be crucified like a murderer? Were they thinking, yeah, he's the way, all right. Yeah, he's the truth. And yeah, life for now. But you know what Jesus did? He went through that whole ordeal of being unjustly treated, beaten, abused, violated, victimized. And he didn't do anything except give in to it. Because he's looking at all the people out there and he, know it, he knows it hurts. But he's seeing that the evil that is at work in the world is so formidable that 
it's going to take a special kind of weapon to undo its influence and effect. And so they nailed him to the cross. And then he's dead. But there's something about the love of God that is stronger than the evil of death. You see, the love of God went down into that tomb and grave and stared death in the face and said, You lose. Have you ever been bullied before? It's not fun, is it? I mean, wouldn't you love to go to that person that bullied you and just look them square in the eye with absolute and total confidence and say, you lose? Well, our ego definitely wants to do that sometimes. But Jesus wanted to do it not out of ego, but out of the burden of his soul. And the love of God pulled him up out of the grave and said, there's a new way for people to live. And it begins with Jesus. And so in the message, Jesus says, when you see me, you see the Father. Why does he say that? Because what the Father wanted Jesus to do was basically portray the characteristics of himself in the life of this person, Jesus. So that when we began to follow Jesus, we would start to portray the characteristics of Jesus in our own lives. And whenever we face things, we would face them Jesus' way. Whenever we were debating about what's true and what's not true, we would process the truth Jesus' way. And when we look at things and we're languishing or we're disheartened or we see no real solution or answer or end, we think about life in all of its fullness and all of its immortality, Jesus' way. Now there's a lot of things that I could tell you about the statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You could have a cult come to your door and you could say, Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life. And you're wrong. Or you could have a Buddhist or Hindu or Hare Krishna or Islamic person or somebody from a a native religion come to your door and say, this is another pathway to God. And you could say, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And you know what? You'd be right. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't come to steamroll over everyone that's just trying to find him through misguided ways. He came to win their hearts. And so when we say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, we do it in the spirit of washing the feet of the people that don't believe it. We do it in the spirit that says, I'm not trying to be arrogant here. I'm just trying to show you that if along the way you're looking for the answer, he's the answer. If along the way you need some clarity on what's true and what's not true, he's the go-to. 
along the way, if you're saying that I don't know what to do about the death issue or even the sickness issue, he's the one to talk to. And so do you kind of catch the spirit of what's going on here? Jesus came into our world to woo us into the presence of God. He didn't want to override anything that, that would say, I'm going to make you do this. But rather, like so many things that we've allowed to influence our lives, we've invited them, haven't we? we participated in things that we found attractive or desirable because we wanted them. And many of us are in the room because we've done exactly that and it's landed us in exactly where we didn't want to land. And then there are others who have said, but if you want to land where you need to land, look no farther than Jesus. When he says, I am the way and the truth and the life, he's not kidding. And so I wonder... As God is working in your life, as he's working in mine, is it compelling enough of a, of a vision, of an image that John's given us, and hopefully I've echoed a little bit, that makes you want to say, yeah, that's the home that I want to come, come home to. That's the person that I want to be. When I grow up as a spiritual being, I want people to see Jesus in my life. And all of those things, God is looking at you and he's saying, I see all of this wonderful potential for that to begin to happen. But there is one barrier. And it's your willingness to accept the fact that we're going the wrong way and to redirect our lives so that in him we're going the right way. And that's hard to do. To say, yeah, I was wrong. When you're parenting and you're thinking, I'm going to parent differently than my mom and dad did because they used to do it this one way. I want to do it another way. And then in the heat of the moment, a kid does something and you react. And who do you channel? Your mom, your dad. And you're like, where did that come from? But in the best way possible, Jesus is saying, I want you to get to a place when you react, it's just me coming through. And you know exactly where that came from. And you'll be glad that I was there with you. So, I don't know where God is leading you in this message series, but perhaps it is to a place where you're surrendering your heart and you're saying, Lord, I do need a course correction. I do need a reset on my own humanity. I need a... I need I need to live life differently. And I want Jesus to show me how. And I want to call you into that relationship.